0: Hello and thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Ashley Burrell. I'm the Secretary of the Board for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We will be producing monthly podcasts featuring women of color in the peace and security field. So please visit WCAPS.org regularly for more details. Today we have Muhammad Frazier Rahim and Rachel Gillum. Mohammed oversees policy, media, and programmatic efforts on preventing violent extremism for all of North America for Quilliam. Quilliam is a counter extremist organization that works with policy, academic, practitioner, actors to find solutions to preventing and countering violent extremism. His background for over a decade was in serving as a counter-terrorism advisor, intelligence officer, and subject matter expert on counter-radicalization and extremist ideology issues globally. In addition, he reported directly and worked with the executive branch at the White House and National Security Council, along with advising multinational corporations and nations throughout Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Rachel is senior director at the Silicon Valley office at Rice-Hadley Gates, LLC, the strategic consulting firm led by former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, and former National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley. Rachel is also an affiliate at Stanford University's Immigration Policy Lab, where she is working with a team of scholars to evaluate policies surrounding the integration of refugees and immigrants worldwide. She is the author of the new book published by University of Michigan Press, Muslims in the post 9 11 America, a survey of attitudes and beliefs and their implications for US national security policy, as well as a number of other scholarly publications and books, book chapters. Prior to receiving her doctorate in political science from Stanford University, Rachel served as an intelligence analyst and later as a researcher at the RAND Corporation's International Policy Center working on counterterrorism. So that's great. So we'll just jump right in. So domestic terrorism is not a crime in and of itself. Um, Mohammed and Rachel will discuss ways that domestic terrorism might be incorporated into a criminal statute. Um, Mary McCord from the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown Law School proposed ideas in recent months to recognize domestic domestic terrorism in U.S. law. My guest will discuss her proposal for how it might be incorporated and what the First Amendment consequences of this proposal might be. So the threat that terrorism poses to people in the U.S. is greater in terms of loss of life and limb post 9-11 Greater that a person will be injured by an act of domestic terrorism than by an act of international terrorism, an act motivated by domestic extremist causes rather than international Islamist extremist causes. Too much of this discussion has focused on the international terrorist threat to the detriment of people understanding the significance of the domestic extremist threat. Heather Hayer's murder in Charlottesville in 2017 and other recent events have drawn in the public discourse to the fact that domestic terrorism is not a federal crime crime in and of itself. More researchers and analysts have argued for an equalization or rationalization of the relationship between international terrorism under U.S. law and domestic terrorism under U.S. law. Every time there is a terrorist incident or hate crime or a major killing in the U.S., we immediately get this inane debate. Is this terrorism? Why isn't this being treated as terrorism? so can you both explain why does this debate happen what the parameters of it are and to what extent and why there is this disparity that exists between domestic and international terrorism for purposes of international criminal law Mohammed, if you could answer first followed by rachel
1: great thank you so much for having me online um one of the things i think is important to, to highlight um, is that I think there's probably a learning curve, or at least I, I always say you have to establish key terms and references up front. So when we even talk about the terminology terrorism, this means so uh, it, it means so many different things to, to depending on where you are. If you're in the academic community, you certainly might be seeing this from a political violence reference point. If you're a practitioner, you're looking at this. From a very sort of on the ground the impact of extremism or terrorism as a whole and then certainly those who are in government policy circles they're engaging this from a very uh, different angle so one i think it's the terminology used and the perspective and so oftentimes i think individuals are struggling when we talk about what do we actually mean when we say terrorism and so there's there's a learning curve that certainly has to take place for those of all of us who are working this problem set and sort of policy circles um, and then you can imagine the impact this has for just general layman um, as a whole. Um, as it relates to transnational terrorism I think that certainly we know that there's an overlap um, that can happen but there are certainly very nuanced groups that are specific to domestic um, uh, or domestic issues that uh, have domestic terrorism implications. Um, for example black nationalist organizations or individuals who align themselves to Black supremacist rhetoric. And though we know for a fact that that is not a very high number of individuals, and I want to make that very clear, um, that's a very, uh, very specific threat to the US context that you wouldn't see um, individuals faced with who are in, for example, Kenya, or if you're in the Middle East, or if you're in uh, Central Asia. And so I think getting individuals understanding the learning curve of the actual groups how they operate, the diversification of these groups too as well. And then in many instances, they aren't a monolith. When we say neo-Nazi groups, what do we actually mean? Are, they, are Should we be more specific when we in, in really reference white supremacist groups? And um, So that level of nuance approaches and uh, understanding the actual groups, how they operate, who they are, definitely will be the starting point to then discuss at all any level of sort of policy implications. And I find that being, though it might be tedious, I find that to be the most important way to start the conversation, and then using that as a point of departure.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. This is Rachel, and again, thank you so much for having me on. I completely agree. And I really think, um, you know, these debates around defining terrorism, what counts as terrorism, what counts as a terrorist group, who can be categorized as a member or an affiliate of a group? I mean, these are questions that academic practitioners and others continue to debate and have not been able to agree on. That's sort of why this area of law is so fraught, because of these definitional problems, and we can talk more about that. But I think there is really, I mean, the bottom line is that there's a really important social and political impact to the language that we use to describe violent crimes, frankly. And I think that's why we keep having this debate every time there's a big event in Charlottesville, um, the Dylan Roof case, um, you know, people getting frustrated. Why why aren't we calling this terrorism? Or, you know, why do we call it a hate crime? Sort of that conversation keeps coming up. And, you know, this is a debate that, that matters. We know that language matters because, you know, as, you know, the public views the issue of terrorism. It's seen as a more important, a more problematic crime than other types of crime. But if we're only labeling violent crime, terrorism that is involving, for example, people associated with Islamist groups, um, then we're gonna overemphasize, we risk overemphasizing that threat compared to identical violence that happens to be associated with some other type of ideology. And again, this matters because this type of language and fear is used to justify really draconian laws and actions against muslim communities against you know even american citizens and it can violate their first amendment rights but we you know the public tends to be more comfortable with this again because of this perception that these groups are foreign um but seem much less comfortable with applying these type of strict laws to um what is seen as domestic movements or groups
0: So what would be the first step if you're working in policy and you're trying to uh, criminalize um, domestic terrorism? What would be, would establishing these key terms and these definitions and trying to understand who these actual groups, like you were saying, are, would that be the first step? And then how would you define
1: You know, I think this is Mohammed. I think that that is a good start. Um, Just again, learning curve. I mean, this is no fault to those who are working in Congress. You know, it's, this is um, their, and and when I say introducing, I I just say no fault to Congress. What I mean is that there are those who are struggling with definitions from multiple vantage points. And I know that there's this recent legislation introduced by, um, I think it was Senator Durbin, who uh, I kind of more characterize as more of a transparency bill to, one, try to work on that definition at a very nuanced level. Mary McCord certainly has been amplifying this message with her work with Lawfare and others too as well. Um, I think there's a really good piece done um, by CRS. I, uh, I think it's Jeremy, I can't pronounce his last name, uh, but I think you know there are individuals and initiatives who are trying to like understand what are we talking about how is this issue um, evolving? Um, And they're, I think, mentioning the the difficulty of that this is a very sort of iterative process, just as much as we've been engaging this in the the broader transnational terrorism threat as well. So I think the legislation level um, is is certainly part of it. I think this is certainly a collaboration too as well, quite frankly, with state governments too as well. Uh, We have 50 states in the U.S. Idaho is going to be addressing this problem that very different than what Virginia or Maryland or New York or California. I mean, I point to the very interesting uh, statistics that we have with ADL that in the calendar year 2018-2019, that we saw that California saw the highest number of instances of on-campus white supremacist propaganda uh, with 58. That was followed by Kentucky with 22 and Oklahoma with 19. So you know, we're dealing with uh, not just this being sort of a public effort or public uh, challenge, but we have right on college campuses where they're addressing this. So you're hearing, and and I'm being specific this way, to show that there are a number of uh, stakeholders who are having to respond to this, that certainly on the legislation level, that will be helpful. Certainly at the state federal level, at the state level and right at various county municipality level engagement to respond um, and so it's it's operating at a fast uh, pace um, as a result of we are seeing an exponential amount of um, a, a rise of extremism um, and particularly as a result of um, largely speaking white supremacist groups but again those other entities as well. We have sovereign citizens, which we don't talk about enough. We have um, environmentalist groups who have been engaging activities. We have the rise of incel or individuals who align themselves. And then lastly, we have individuals or groups who I would categorize as, uh, as hoppers. They switch back and forth. And then they're not easily defined in particular categories that we have outlined thus far. So if it sounds like it's complicated, it's because it is. And I think that that's that I think even recognizing that is part of um, us finding a potential solution.
2: Okay. Yeah, so, I think that's, oh, ahead, Rachel. no, I, I, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, um, because you know, there are several proposals on the table. But I mean, my, my feeling is that, again, as, as Mohammed said, Right on. This is so complicated. It is so difficult to, um, you know, try to define this issue. And be, have been in the room when many of these conversations have been had. I'm not really confident that we can all agree on one definition. Um, one thing I, I like about um, the bill that Muhammad referenced um, the um, that bill, the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act that's been proposed in the Senate, um, is one thing it tries to do is get our agencies to focus on, not so much of, you know, again, trying to agree on what groups might fall into a terrorist category, but focus on the outcomes. Let's prioritize our resources to stopping this type of violence, again, based on, you know, how many people are being killed? We need better statistics. How many people are, you know, suffering from these types of acts and really prioritize our efforts in that way, because even though you can sort of make these buckets of, these different types of groups. Um, you know, we've seen in recent history, you know, the FBI really target environmentalist uh, groups that they say are extreme, but these groups haven't killed anyone. So why are we, you know, putting so much resources into chasing after these groups? I think if we took an approach and sort of allowed data to drive sort of where we're putting our focus and resources, I think that would lead to better outcomes. And I think that would balance out now that we're seeing more people, as we're looking closely, are being killed by these white supremacists than, for example, Islamists, you know, we need to focus more on that threat versus, again, wrestling around some of these definitions. Because we do, in fact, have a definition codified in our law. Um, It's just, and we can talk more about this, that um, for whatever reason, the Justice Department and others have not been choosing to use the term domestic terrorists, even though, again, there's a legal definition that many of these hate crimes meet that legal definition of domestic terrorism i think we should be free to use that term terrorism and we can talk more about why that term hasn't been used as much
1: and what i wanted to do just to amplify uh point rachel mentioned is um and i'm sure rachel you'd agree with this on as well is and i was pulling up um i took some notes earlier today i was looking at the legislation and you know, even making sure that information is readily available. Oftentimes, and I've been in this camp, uh, having worked in the intelligence community, um, we we overclassify. So, trying to make sure a lot of this information is shareable, it's unclassified when available when necessary, and finding a way to share that information. We certainly saw the breakdown. Pre 9 11 and the impact it had with interagency challenges and struggles. So, you know, I hope that we can use this as a lesson learned um, of how we can do things right in light of what we've been addressing in the aftermath of 9 11 and the subsequent years afterwards to also find ways that, you know, the, the information is being shared in a timely and relevant way to threat attacks um because it's not if it's just when certainly when we're dealing with domestic terrorist groups too as well and that's and we we don't have to necessarily reinvent the wheel we can certainly build on we can learn from those past mistakes and finding really ways in which this is can this can be available to the general public because as you know it it, we make the statement and say see something say something it sounds a bit sort of old-fashioned a bit cliche a bit um um, a, a bit corny, if you will. Uh, but I think that that support from the general public is so important in light of just the rise of these domestic terrorist groups.
0: Okay. And so can you explain, when you're talking about domestic terrorist groups, why there is such a disparity between the, how it developed historically that international terrorism offenses are defined and, and there are, these groups are designated, yet domestic terrorist groups are not designated.
1: Um, well, I'll say and try to give you the short version on this without putting on my historian hat. Um, I think that, you know, I would say that um, a perfect storm has sort of been created in light of just the rise of sort of populist movements um, and I think in light of the experiment with not just American democracies, I think other nation states throughout the world are faced with this and seeing a rise of um, of nationalist groups. Um, you know, the United States is not an exception. Europe is dealing with this and we know that these groups have learned from um, transnational movements and how they've operated and how they have um, um, engaged. Um, I use a perfect example of Dylan Roof. If you look at just the the uh, the visual motif or the the aesthetic he had a mushroom cut uh, hair haircut and we've seen other groups um, who and individuals that have been picked up if you read multiple FBI affidavits who have uh, have found individuals who had a similar haircut like Dylan Roof I don't think that's a coincidence I think that they've learned from one another they you know that they, those that despicable attack that happened in Charleston has been sort of a unified, I mean, in hars and certainly um, in, in, in Scandinavian, uh, in, 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 I think it was um, Norway, Norway, um, certainly impacted as well. And so I think that um, we've seen a slow rise and we've seen these groups learn from one another uh, what not to do in their tactics, in their techniques and their procedures of Islamist groups and how to not make the same mistakes. And I think, you know, whether they're white supremacist groups, certainly that are on the rise in the United States, they have adapted that same sort of um, um, method of how they can be effective and how they can also blend in um, to garner new recruits. I mean, in the business for extremism or individual extremist groups, their, their whole interest is to get new individuals and supportive around their cause. Um, and so I think you add that we see the transnational nature of this uh, of these domestic terrorist groups who are learning across the pond. We certainly saw it in Christchurch. We've seen it, as I mentioned, in in other places in Europe. I think it's only going to be on the her, on the on the rise. And I don't think this is out of isolation. I think this is just the the rise of of this this sentiment. Um, And unless we stay vigilant, unless we respond quickly um, now, we will see this uh, really um, become a top national security issue for us. Um, And that's not even addressing the other national security priorities that we have to deal with. But I see this is certainly one that we have to get a hold of um, for the foreseeable future. Okay.
2: Yeah, and I'll just jump in there um, just to, you know, answer like legally speaking, you know, why do we have an, or or I'll say as a fact, we have a list that the State Department designates of international terrorist organizations. We do not have a similar list of domestic organizations. And how the list is used for the State Department in the case of, again, events that happen here, um, it's basically if you can find an individual who in any way, shape, or form has supported or um, you know enhance the work of one of these foreign organizations this person can be charged on international terrorism you know uh, charges right and so that's why you see cases where um, again you someone who had sort of arbitrarily claimed you know uh, support of isis or some group um, but even though they conducted an attack entirely from the united states and this person had never necessarily even been abroad that can be counted as an international terrorist, you know, act because of this vague affiliation with this foreign entity that has been deemed a terrorist organization. And so that has allowed for really broad, um, again, charges against particularly Muslim organizations. And the reason you can't necessarily or we haven't seen it done with domestic groups is because they're arguably some would say are not, there's not the same international element, there's not the same element crossing international lines. But to Mohammed's point, actually, I think there's a lot of room to argue that a lot of these Nazi movements, neo-Nazi movement, white supremacist movements do in fact have an international element. Um, and, I, and I think that would be reason to revisit the State Department list of sort of what type of ideologies are not just domestic, they're international. So just to add that point, I think there there could be more room if, if it was a pri- priority to start to use some of these um, international, these, these laws that can, you know, focus on international te- terrorism, we can use them against some of these um, domestic movements. But I do want to make the point that you know, there is good reason why we don't have a domestic terrorist list. And in my opinion, um, and I think in the opinion of a lot of civil, um, you know, civil libertarians and others is that, you know, such a list could unconstitutionally criminalize unpopular ideas and ideologies. And I think, especially in our current political environment, we have to be really cautious about when we're giving more powers to the justice department, to the government, to, um, we have to think about how they, these things can be abused. I think right away about an old secret government program called Co-Intel Pro from the 1950s, 60s, 70s that was largely targeting left-wing movements. In this case, this was deemed to be illegal activity, but um, the government, the FBI, was really targeting civil rights organizations, a lot of um, black nationalist movements, but also feminist movements, environmental, animal rights organizations, and Again, um, we see that depending on who's in office, different groups, different political movements can be seen as threatening. And I would be worried that such a domestic terrorist list could be politicized, right? Again, we'd imagine the current administration might have different priorities than maybe the one before it. and so I just wanna flag that, and I think that sort of is what is sort of framing my thinking around how we need to be careful about extending these powers and think again about how they can be abused and, and how we can stop that.
0: Okay, thanks for bringing up that point. Um, so if you commit an act of domestic terrorism, which involves killing people or trying to kill people, there's a whole lot of authority to prosecute you for the murder, for the bomb making, for the acquisition of whatever weapons you use, as well as for the conspiracy to do it. So there's no substantive deficit prosecutorial authority. On the other hand, the international terrorism laws developed because there was a substantive deficit with respect to a number of things. One being you kill a bunch of people abroad. Presumptively, there was no jurisdiction over that. It had to be created, and it was created because we wanted to prosecute international terrorist groups abroad. There's no law against that until the mid 1990s, and there's a statute, there's statutes that had to be created in order to address a foreign terrorist problem. There was no deficit with respect to domestic authorities. To what extent is the disparity in both of your minds a reflection of an anti Muslim prejudice, fear of foreign groups, and lackadaisical attitude to domestic white supremacist groups? Versus to what extent is it simply a reflection of the historical needs that gave that gave rise to the statutes that currently, currently govern?
1: Really good question. Um, you know, I think that the the reality is for the American public as well as policymakers as well, um, we have been largely dealing with in the very relevant uh, view of. Of, 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 of this century we've been dealing with the we've been dealing with the threat of islamist groups um you know people's vision of extremism is largely equated to the Pan Am flight um uh, Lockerbie, their the imagination is uh, the taliban it is al-qaeda it is largely shaped by the threat posed by uh violent extremist groups who have taken a twisted interpretation of islam so I, I think that you know for 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 individuals who are responding to this um, that is very much part of the imagination or the or, or the view of how we have been confronted with responding in, in, in whether it is a legal fashion response or it is responding um, just at a policy level so I think that that's that's important to just situate all of us in terms of the conversation because that it, that has directly impacted how individuals have been addressing this um, rise of domestic terrorism threat there's certainly some political dynamics to this as well i'll save that for today and try to keep it very nonpartisan but i think that the the the, the but, but that has that has impacted and i think both of those sides have played there's an interplay um, of how to respond adequately and hopefully respond respond in a way where it's a nonpartisan issue. Um, and really what I would hope, um, and I've, most of my career have been very, I made it a point and I couldn't do it when I was in government, is not to be policy prescriptive, but I think that these issues of security are really, they should be in a perfect world, a nonpartisan issue that it does, that cuts across the various ideological um, views and really addresses mm-hmm. to what's uh, important for America as a whole. Um, I will add, and um, I like using the term, and I like how you use it as well, anti-Muslim bigotry versus Islamophobia. I'm still quite trying to figure out what is Islamophobia, but I think the anti-Muslim bigotry gets much more, or anti-Muslim hatred certainly gets to the much more, uh, to the, it hits the nail on the coffin about what we're describing. Um, I think Muslim communities have certainly been impacted and affected by this as well, um in light of the partisan nature of where these uh, this has driven things, certainly that doesn't take away that Muslim communities have to and should be and continue to be vigilant on these uh, on this threat that we certainly have seen We're, radicalization is not in an isolation, and Muslim communities are certainly uh, have been affected and seen individuals who've taken this twisted narrow tape interpretation of Islam. So I think communities have to be held accountable and they should and do work, but that is no different than addressing issues of uh, urban violence within African-American communities elsewhere. So I don't think that that's a surprise. What I would lastly just say is that um, we have to see this as not being a one-all or one-size-fits-all approach, but we have to recognize the multiple threats that we're facing and that we do all of our efforts to make sure that we address them in a very timely, very nuanced fashion to make sure that all citizens of America are protected, that we work in partnership with community groups too as well. I mean, Rachel certainly could speak on this quite eloquently in light of her, uh, her book, who I'm going, I'm going through now and actually enjoying it as well. Uh, um, but I would tell you that I think that this is, um, this should be really a nonpartisan issue, that I've been a little disappointed that it, it has gone in such a very partisan fashion. But I'm hopeful. I'm an eternal optimist as well.
2: No, I, and I couldn't agree more. And very briefly, um, thank you, Mohammed, for, for looking at my book. And I'll say in the process of writing my book, I did speak to a number of law enforcement officials about, you know, this question about um, how these things are prosecuted, what are the processes? And, and, and there, there is a part, just a practicality of it. And some, and some have told me that in many cases, it's actually easier to prosecute. Domestic terrorism under other federal laws, um, gun laws, different conspiracy statutes um, regarding different um, activities, um, and these are strategies that have been used for decades to counter, you know, um, different mafia movements and families and different types of crimes, and basically a strategy to sort of get these people on lower-level crimes because those are easier to prove um, definitively, right? Um, you know again, tax evasion is the Al Capone famous, you know, he was never prosecuted under a lot of his bigger, you know, more deadly crimes, but they got him on tax evasion. And, and that's how they can get him off the streets. That's, that's how they'll do it. And, and that's what I've been told a lot of these strategies are to get these guys off the streets or, or to stop them from doing something by getting them on a lesser um, charge, just get them off because for our conversation about these um, definitional difficulties, it's hard to, prove, you know, someone's intention or motivation, whether it's hate crime or terrorism. And even on the international side, um, you see, you've seen many cases where um, law enforcement has stopped potential terrorists um, who have an international component on things like immigration violations, again, lower level charges which they can sort of you know get the person off the street to protect the public um and then proceed with you know what other other charges they want to pursue um so i just want to add that but i completely agree with you know what muhammad said this shouldn't be a partisan issue this shouldn't be differ from administration to administration and we should think about what are the smartest laws given our country's values and priorities here
0: okay great thank you Um, So we mentioned her name earlier. Mary McCord is a professor of practice at Georgetown Law School, a senior litigator at the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown Law School, and the former acting assistant attorney general for national security at the U.S. Department of Justice. She has a proposal for a domestic terrorism statute modeled on an existing terrorism statute, the statute that prohibits acts that transcend national boundaries. That statute is based on designating certain violent crimes, murder, mayhem, assault with a dangerous weapon, aggravated assault, kidnapping. When any one of those enumerated crimes are committed with what she suggests as the second half of the statute, would be when any of these specifically enumerated crimes are committed with one of the intents that is already included in the federal definition of domestic terrorism, then that would itself be the crime of domestic terrorism. The intents are to intimidate or coerce the civilian population, influence government action by intimidation or coercion, or the intent to affect the conduct of government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping. So what is your critique of uh, Mary's proposed statute?
2: Um, yeah, I'll I'll jump in really quick. I mean, I've, I've mentioned sort of a lot of the issues um, that I've thought about. I mean, I, I think Mary's an incredibly smart person, incredibly thoughtful, um, and, has, and has written a lot on this, and I think it's an important conversation to have. And what she's arguing really is that there needs to be a moral equivalency between domestic terrorism, which typically, again, this this right wing and and white supremacist violence we've been talking about typically falls into this bucket. There needs to be a moral equivalency between domestic terrorism and international terrorism, which again, in most recent decades, we've we've seen associated largely with Islamist movements. and so I, I agree with this. I agree with this, that we should be equating, these are not different just because of the ideology or the how a person looks. We shouldn't be differentiating on the severity of, of violence. I mean, it's, it's bad either way and we want to stop it no matter who is conducting this violence. Again, what I don't necessarily agree with is that we need a new statute to deal with this issue. Um, I would argue, overall, I think this, again, is really a political and social discussion as discussion of priorities rather than a a legal problem. Um, And I've talked to a few folks who who work on this, and, and many lawyers, I'm not a lawyer, by the way, would argue that the Justice Department already has the authority to come down hard on domestic terrorists, and, by the way, can call it domestic terrorism because though there's not... Again, a crime associated with domestic terrorism, we do have a legal definition of domestic terrorism. So, while we can, again, use all these other federal crimes we have laws against, you know, conspiracy to commit murder or do all these different things, um, we can charge people on those charges and we can also call it domestic terrorism because, again, there's a definition and we can say when an actor or a person falls into that category. and again, for whatever reason, we can talk more about this um, domestic terrorism. It just hasn't been prioritized in that way, and it hasn't been talked about in that way. Um, and again, my main concern um, with again adding extra authority, and again, especially expanding authority around domestic terrorism, risks some abuse of these powers. Um, you know, uh, you know, thinking about political opponents or movements that certain administrations don't like. So I think we just really have to take a step back. And as you said, Ashley. Um, Basically, what she's proposing is just adding an identical criminal statute as currently exists, um, section 2332B, and basically removing the term, you know, involving conduct transcending national boundaries. Um, And again, I see what she's trying to do here, but I just worry that this could now open a whole, you know, Pandora's box of behavior that can suddenly be counted as terrorism when it maybe should be ca- not counted in that way. And again, the consequence being, you know, the very severe punishments on the other end. Um, what she also does, though, is add, you know, usage of firearms and da- other dangerous weapons to the statute, which I think is is useful. It's kind of surprising that firearms doesn't, you know, fall into one of these categories of, you know, weapons used. Um, but... and and I also support she adds pieces of what has already been proposed in the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act that we discussed earlier um, about this you know idea that we need to collect better data we need to understand this problem there's no way we can address this problem until we understand it um I agree with that spirit to to want to collect more data um I think many would argue that the Justice Department already has the authority to do this, but just hasn't pushed for it. It has allowed you know, different law enforcement agencies to voluntarily provide this type of data, and it, unsurprisingly, there's a lot of holes in it. So anyway, I, I would say again, I agree with the spirit of her proposal, but I, I approach it with a lot of caution, this idea of expanding the authority to prosecute domestic terrorism in this way, um, just because I think we already have the tools and I worry about abuse of this.
1: I would ditto everything uh, Rachel just mentioned. So we're in total agreement. The only thing I would just um, add is that I am a huge believer that we should avoid at all costs to be duplicative. Um, and I, and so DOJ um, certainly is a vehicle of lots of information that we already have that I think we can work within the confines of existing information and just actually find uh, mechanisms that um, or means, I should say. That, ha- that can be enforced. And so um, that's the only point that I would add on this. And, and again, having been in these spaces and um, worked on these issues for a very long time, I, I think that we have lots of information. The U.S. government is quite robust, most powerful nation in the world. We have legal structures that are in place. Certainly we have to revisit them, but I think we just have to work within the, the uh, within making sure that the bureaucracy that we have already existing information, that, is, that it's um, dispersed out in a manner where it's much more um, pragmatic and that it's much more clear and much more um, um, concise in terms of how, we, uh, and how we're dealing with this emerging threat. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. I, I think that that's something that I've evolved on my thinking on this issue, um, just broader, whether it's domestic terrorism or transnational extremism, there's so much efforts that we're already doing. Um, we just have to work within those, um, with within those means. And and quite frankly, too, as well, you know, we're, we're shifting away from saying austerity times in the U.S. I shouldn't say austerity, but uh, limited resources. That's That was a conversation that we used to always talk about. work Work with little resources and try to have high impact. That's been a statement when I was in government, when I left in 15, and I'm sure it's still being said now. So in that spirit, I would say, um, that would be my um, recommendations, if I I could, on the analysis that Mary offered.
0: Okay. Do you guys have anything else you wanna add or any concluding statements?
1: Um, I would just add, very briefly, just to say that, you know, the impact, us making a decision on making sure that our domestic terrorism policy um, is addressed in a coherent, comprehensive way now will save taxpayer dollars, um, many resources for the long term. And um, I know it's very hard when we're dealing with a current threat, um, but there will constantly be new threats that we're confronted with. You know, um Rise Above Movement, Adam Waffen Division—just um, two white supremacist organization or violent domestic groups that we're dealing with now—will morph into some other entity. So um, we have to be we have to be forward thinking for the for, for the long term um, in how we address this issue, and we have to find ways where we're not as reactionary. That I think, sometime, our, regardless of the administration. Um, or if it's the Dems or Republicans in office, we have to find ways where we're thinking um, beyond just the short term and thinking more strategically. And I think that that will help us all collectively as we continue to try to unpack, dismantle some of this uh, really nuanced policy level issues as well.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more exactly. And it said, I think it's so important that we have these type of conversations. I think I'm glad, you know, Mary McCord's making these proposals. I'm glad there's a lively conversation around this topic because again, domestic terrorism is a real threat that we need to address, but we need not to be reactionary and we need to take into consideration the lessons um, you know, of, the, of our recent history and not forget that as we're, you know, implementing these new policies and laws.
0: Okay. Well, thank you both so much for your time and uh, your participation today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. Please visit wcaps.org. That's W-C-A-P-S dot